0: To Behind the Headlines on the Sat Radio Network, I'm Joe Quinn, and my co-hosts this week are, as usual, Neil Bradley. Hi, everyone. Harrison Keeley. Hello. And Alan Martin.
1: Hello, everyone.
0: This week, we are fed up of everything, um, because despite, <clears throat> what is it now, six years of... Uh, Weekly radio shows, actually six years, yes, almost six years, maybe let's say five. Five years of weekly radio shows, um, nothing's getting better. In fact, everything's getting worse, in case you haven't noticed. So as a result, we have decided that uh, it's most likely that we are to blame for things going to hell, uh, mainly through our radio show by pointing out how it's going to hell, it's just making things worse. So we're not going to be doing any more radio shows after today uh, in an effort to correct the downward trajectory on which the planet seems to be set. Um,
1: I think you're shouldering a little too much responsibility there,
0: Joe. uh, Well, I've been listening to a lot of Jordan Peterson, and (laughs) uh, he talks (laughs) all about responsibility. And I've tidied my room... So I figured the next thing to do then is to try and sort out all of the world's problems. Seems like a logical next step. So, Mm -hmm. um, yeah, anyway, as well as we noted, things do seem to be pretty bad right now. General mayhem, general chaos, general lies, general manipulations, general fecklessness uh, amongst those who should be, uh, in theory, um, the responsible ones, the ones who uh, should be taking care of society and doing the right thing, uh, you know, um, calming down conflicts rather than creating them, telling the truth rather than telling lies, uh, being honest with people rather than manipulating people, but uh, that's what they seem to be doing. So it's pretty bad uh, across the board, as you may have noticed, or you may not have noticed, depending on whether or not you've been paying attention. Um, so we're just this week we're just going to run down through some of the worst of the worst that has been going on over the past week only. And that gives you an idea of just how bad the situation is when we can. Uh, you just have to wait a week and then you've got lots of really bad stuff to talk about every week. Um, the one that kind of sticks out, or the one that we're going to address first, I suppose, is the over the past few days, the uh, situation in Israel-Palestine. Wow, what a surprise. It's a shitstorm over there. Again, there's something new. Not. Um, Palestinians being killed. Uh, shot kind of out of hand, assassinated, whatever you want to call it, um, for protesting their situation that is now uh, 40, 48, right? 48 was the establishment of the State of Israel. <clears throat> mm-hmm. So this is the 70th year. Uh, the Nakba is, I think, coming up in May, which is the pretty much the date they've set for when Palestinians were uh, basically run off their land uh, by the Israelis in 1948, Oh, was it 1948? Well, no, 1948 mm-hmm, was the yeah. creation of the State of Israel. Yeah, so pretty much the same date uh, they, they take as the creation of the State of Israel as, the, as that period. Of course, it wasn't just one day or one week. It was over a longer period of time. But that's the that's the date that's been chosen. Uh, some, I think it's the 15th of May or sometime around early May. Uh, so the events that you saw, you might have seen over the past few weeks, or the past few days, sorry, um, in in Gaza are really a, a result of that Uh leading up to the, the 70th anniversary of the creation of the State of Israel and the dispossession of Palestinian people of their land. Um, so who's got well, some, spe- go ahead.
2: Well, spe- specifically they are demonstrating um, – I believe it's a, a protest in recognition of – I believe it's six Palestinians that were killed in, like, 1976. Mm-hmm so it's like a recommemoration of that date uh, today you know in the lead up to the nakba but um so specifically the
0: for some the reason Palestinians
2: yeah they're pro- Palestinians yeah but they're so they're protesting against the killing of Palestinian civilians mm-hmm. and then as they protest against the killing of Palestinian civilians uh israel kills um you know I, the numbers at 16 so far or was yesterday so they kill 16 civilians on the commemoration of the, the killing of six. So I guess that... Well,
3: uh, I yeah. It says a lot that in 1976, the killing of six people was a big deal. Mm-hmm. And they set out to commemorate it. And on that date, about 50 years later, 16, now 17 people are killed. Mm-hmm. In, yeah. in a slaughter. Um, uh, I think both sides agree there were about 30,000 people there. So it's, it was a little different. I mean, a lot of protests going all the time on the West Bank and in Gaza, but that's a lot for Gaza because they don't usually have the inclination to protest because protesting is generally more of a luxury, you know, especially that kind of volume of people. Um, it's a family day out, they're waving flags, um, they're protesting peacefully. On their side, they said don't go any closer than X hundred meters to the fence or anything. But Israel claims that this mob attempted to infiltrate Israel, to break down the fence and invade Israel. That's the language they're putting in. They're putting in exactly the same language that is being used in Europe to describe the Muslim invasion mm-hmm. uh, in a an swarm. attempt, I think, to, to you know, get people to to see it as the same thing, when it clearly isn't.
4: Right. Mm-hmm.
1: And just a little background, uh, the people of Gaza have been suffering, um, a blockade for, I guess, since uh, Operation Cast Lead in uh, 2008 and Protective Edge following that. So they have been denied uh, humanitarian aid, uh, building materials for the tens of thousands of structures that have been destroyed by the IDF in those operations, Uh, their hospitals, their agriculture, their flower plants, uh, you name it. I mean, Israel has basically, in the past ten years, decimated not only decimated their infrastructure and their housing and their uh, water supply, but they've basically made the situation there uh, beyond unlivable. Uh, there have been statements made to the effect that you know the the Gazans are suffering a humanitarian crisis, and basically that's the case. So these people. Uh, out of desperation, are trying to call attention to the situation there, in addition to commemorating the NABCA, Um and, and that's what they're faced with. They're faced with a world that uh, has uh, largely given up or ignored uh, their, their dire situation.
3: Yeah. The Palestinian Health Ministry has a list of 1,416 people wounded, um, 758 they say from live fire 758 people took bullets of which m- most of those uh, most of the deaths probably come also fr- fr- from sniper fire uh, then another 148 from rubber tip bullets so the non-lethal weapons only injured a min- minority um, 422 were injured from inhaling so-called tear gas a chemical weapon in my opinion and 88 from other causes, from being stampeded or falling or tripping or what have you. So it, it looks like, it, if that checks out, the majority of people wounded were shot at
0: by the Israelis. Right. But well, the Israelis themselves had said that they had a, a policy of uh, non-lethal uh, force, which, uh, in the Israeli military uh, rulebook, that means shooting people in the legs or in other extremities that are you know, that uh, means that they l- probably won't die. So, I mean, and you see, you see the pictures of the, of the Israeli IDF kind of snipers lined up on the hill of dirt that's just the other side of the of the fence. And it's not a wall. It's a fence in, in most places. There were actually three p- places where the Palestinians had gathered to, to demonstrate. Uh, really it really was just a demonstration. Um, for their rights and their anger against the, the situation, the fact that, you know, the long-standing situation where they were thrown off the land uh, decades ago and demanding the right of return. Um, it's never going to happen, but, you know, you can respect their their right to uh, to complain about it. Uh, sure, they were throwing stones, that kind of thing. There might have been one or two Hamas people kind of fired a few shots or something like that. Uh, but you're talking about 30,000 people here, so um, and when you have 17 dead and hundreds uh, wounded, it, uh, and, and the videos that you see of uh, Palestinian guys being kind of shot in the back as they're running uh, away from from the fence, um, uh, <laughs> well, everybody understands, everybody knows that the Israelis, the Israeli military and the Israelis in general have a uh, serious amount of disdain for the lives of Palestinians. They see them as as vermin, effectively, and several politicians are on record as calling them that or some some version of that. Uh, so they have no problem with uh, with shooting uh, Palestinians just out of hand, effectively. And that's well known, so um, it's not surprising that they that so many people were killed. And uh, I think Hamas said that they recognized that five of the people who were killed were members of their organization, who were militants in some way or other. But clearly, if you look at the videos, <coughs> there's no there's no large-scale offensive by the Palestinians to, like, break down the fence or to – there's no – there aren't teams of people shooting at – you don't see any shots, really, in any of the videos. Um, There's nobody firing rockets. You know, the Israelis claim that they were going over the border fence to to, to plant explosives or whatever. But, you know, that's just kind of pure nonsense because, I mean, if you look at – again, if you look at the videos, you see that it's very clear to anybody on the Palestinian side that – uh there were lines of, of Israeli soldiers with guns pointed at them who's going to walk straight up uh to those people and uh, and not expect to get to get shot or not think that they're going to uh, they're not going to be able to do whatever they were intending to do so it's kind of nonsense really it obviously was a protest more than anything else um and there's plenty of ways the Israeli military could have uh, warned off Palestinians you know um, uh, warning shots that kind of thing and of course tear gas etc but um None of them. There's no, there's no, there's no video evidence of any Palestinian actually getting anywhere near the fence or the intention of getting near the fence to knock it down and swarm into Israel. I mean, Israeli really. Maybe we'll listen to this guy for a little bit. There's really. Uh, I don't know who is this guy is. He is. A spokesperson. He's a foreign ministry spokesman. I talked to RT and he gave side of the story. I, he's, you'll hear him presenting the situation as if you know these 30,000 Palestinians were intent on invading. <laughs> launching a full-scale invasion of Israel or something, uh, which is complete nonsense, because if you look at the, the people that are there, you see lots and lots of women, lots of old people, lots of uh, children. And if you look at the video, or the, look at the pictures on on the, um, on the slide show that we have for today's show, you'll see at least three people uh, there who are being carried away, having been, having been shot, uh, and all of them are minors. Uh, so the Israelis were shooting children, basically, among other people. Um because these children were supposedly planning a full-scale ground war against Israel or something along those lines. But let's listen to the video or Watch it for those who watch it later.
4: David, can we just start by
0: getting your reaction then to the violence we've seen over the last two days?
5: Yeah, uh, it's a tragedy what's happening and unfortunately it's happening because Hamas is trying to infiltrate Israel with uh, thousands of people trying to storm into Israel. Uh, And it's shooting rockets, and it's uh, laying bombs, and it's shooting guns, and Israel is simply defending itself from this onslaught. And of course, it's particularly dangerous because of what Hamas is, a terrorist organization that openly declares its aim to destroy Israel and openly calls for genocide of Jews. So uh, this is outrageous what's happening, and Hamas is clearly to blame. You don't
0: see this as an overreaction,
5: because on the other side of the
0: argument, people say people are protesting, but we're seeing people with Molotov cocktails, they're throwing
5: stones, and in response they're getting fired at with live ammunition and tank shells, and 17 people have been killed. Well, I've been to many protests in my time, and at none of the protests I've been to have people shot rockets, have people tried to infiltrate uh, a sovereign state, Uh, or have people tried to lay bombs in order to kill as many civilians as possible. The aim of this event is to swarm into Israel and to overwhelm it. And it's part of a long track record of Hamas waging war against Israel, launching tens of thousands of missiles, conducting suicide bombings against cafes and against civilians and in buses. This is what Hamas is. They don't hide their aim. The leadership of Hamas is very clear. They say openly, like Ahmed Bahar, the Deputy Speaker of the Parliament says, we will kill every Jew down to the very last one. And Ismail Haniyeh and Mahmouda Zahar openly declare that Jews are vermin and cancer and therefore we will wipe them from the face of the earth. That's what this is about and it needs to stop. And the real tragedy is that it can stop now. There doesn't need to be any bloodshed. There doesn't need to be any killings. There doesn't need to be any injured. All Hamas has to do is say, stay away from the security fence don 't try to infiltrate Israel, and all of it can stop immediately. why doesn 't that happen, do you think? because we 've got what six weeks ahead of us now, and if we
0: go by the record death toll that we 've seen already, hundreds will be killed during this period.
5: Why is there this sort of impasse of trying to find peace? well it 's not exactly an impasse, it 's one side waging war against the other. All you have to do is listen to the leadership um, of Hamas, for example, Mahmoud Zahar, just to give you one example said that Jews were wild beasts and wild dogs. And Hamas's deputy religious endowments minister said that only a madman would think of Jews as human. And from their charter on down to every statement they have, they say we will annihilate Israel. Not just that, they cynically use children and women and civilians, and they're proud of that fact. It was Hamas's interior minister, Fatih Hamad who said he was proud that women, children, and the elderly form a human shield. And we just saw in this latest event that Hamas sent a seven-year-old girl to try to be shot right by Israel's security fence.
0: Blah, blah, blah. Yeah, right. I mean, same old nonsense. You know, you made me, what what did Netanyahu call them a few years ago during Castlet? Telegenically dead Palestinians. I actually Mm -hmm. wrote an article on on it using that term. Um, Telegenically dead. So this is the claim that uh, Palestinians force Israelis to kill their children. uh, And then the Israelis are very sad. They say, look what you made me do. Um, That's the kind of argumentation you're getting. That's the kind of mindset that you're getting out of the, these Israeli politicians. And when I mean, he talks about, he uses a few examples there of what the Hamas officials or whoever have said, have co- said about Jews or called Jews. Well, you know, <clears throat> it goes just as just as well the other way. Was, uh, the current Israeli uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu said that uh, his approach to Palestinians was to beat them up, not once but repeatedly, beat them up so it hurts so badly until it's unbearable. <clears throat> Israeli Deputy Defence Minister uh, in 2013, Rabbi Eli Ben-Dahan. Palestinians are beasts. They are not human. Current Israeli Defense Minister Avigdor Lieberman, or Doberman, depending on your perspective, uh, said about uh, Israel's Arab minority, those who are against us, there's nothing to be done. We need to pick up an axe and cut off his head. Israeli Minister of Culture, Miri Regev. I am happy to be a fascist. Mm-hmm. Uh, Israeli Minister of Justice on Palestinians, another woman. They should go, as should the physical homes in which they raise their snakes. Otherwise, more little snakes will be raised there. Benjamin Netanyahu again, we must defend ourselves against wild beasts. Masha Yalon, former Israeli defense minister, the Palestinian threat harbors cancer-like attributes that have to be severed. There are all kinds of solutions to cancer. Some say it's necessary to amputate organs. But at the moment, I'm applying chemotherapy. And uh, a former Israeli deputy prime minister, again, just to round it off, Eli Yishai urges the army to send Gaza back to the Middle Ages. So, you know, that's kind of a small sample of the rhetoric that has come out, has been coming out of Israeli politicians and Israeli religious leaders over the past 30, 40 years, 50 years. Um, So then you wonder why, or does anybody wonder why the Israeli soldiers would be deciding just to shoot arbitrarily a few Palestinians because they're just beasts, they're a cancer, they need to be wiped out. Um,
3: Apparently, they actually get very specific instructions. All the 17 killed were men Mm -hmm. between a certain age. And I think it was either later on in this, we didn't play all of it, or it was another spokesman who, who mentioned... As a matter of fact, he wasn't in a position of defending himself, but he's, he clarified something, that the policy at this protest was only to target anyone between the ages of 18 and 40 males.
0: So. But they didn't, obviously, because there are images of children and women, being young shot. girls, right. younger than that, being carried away with with With, with, wounds, with
3: wounds. I didn't know that. Okay. But I, I, know, I was just going with, with what he claimed, namely that we well, have very specific instructions. Well, as if that makes it okay. But I think
0: I think that would only apply to live rounds. Maybe he's not specific enough. But I think that applies applies to live rounds, as in real bullets, basically. Yeah. Uh, that doesn't apply to the jack, the rubber coated bullets, which are just basically the same, more or less, the same bullets, but with uh, with plastic or co- rubber coating on them. You know. So and mm-hmm. they do. There are people that have been uh, killed with those mm-hmm. um mm-hmm. It, what do you call her um the the young girl who was in the in the news of ah, had to mimi i ah, had to mimi her brother who the reason she slapped the israeli soldier was because her cousin actually had been shot in the head with one of those rubber coated bullets um yeah and basically severely disfigured right <clears throat> um, I
2: and mean, what did the israelis claim they they tried to Get him to admit that he just fell off his bike or something right. like
3: that? Yes. Oh, Jesus. Serious
0: bike accident.
3: So when it comes to name-calling this spokesman, David Keyes, I mean, fine. You can go back and find anything people said and list them and cite them. But what does that have to do with the issue at hand? You just murdered 17 hmm. protesters. So his other tactic there in defending it was to invoke shooting rockets, laying bombs...
0: Suicide bombings.
3: Suicide
2: bombings. And firing and guns. He
3: says he's, the tense he knows, he can't just claim that those specific things were used no. in the moment. But he, he talks about it in the present continuous tense, mm-hmm. i.e. this is what we have to put up with yeah. on an ongoing basis. Ergo, we're justified shooting people dead. Exactly.
0: Yeah, because there was a, a suicide bombing, supposedly, although that's be pretty doubtful about the legitimacy of many of the Palestinian suicide bombings over the years. Because it's far too easy to stage a so-called suicide bombing. But um, yeah, his point clearly, although he doesn't mean he doesn't uh, say it in this way, but clearly what he's implying is that because uh, Palestinian militants or or, um, members of Hamas or whatever have
3: uh, have wronged us, have killed
0: Israelis in the past, then today at a peaceful protest, we're justified in shooting Palestinians dead. Well, that's the state of Israel, the only democracy in the Middle East. Yep, sure it is, my backside.
1: Mm-hmm. <clears throat> yes. and, in, and in prior operations, you know, Joe, you, you rattled off those, uh, those statements um, on the part of the IDF and, and uh, people in Israeli government. Uh, in prior operations, you have, um, you know, members of Breaking the Silence, the former uh, IDF soldiers who've come out to say, that they've been given specific instructions: go crazy, do, right. you know, do what you do what you like. If you see something, move, you know, kill it, destroy it. Uh, and there have been so many, just a plethora of statements that contradict this idea of Israel being the most moral uh, military in, in the Middle East uh, that that have been quoted uh, from them. That you know, it's like how do you. You know how do you make all these public statements that that uh, reveal your your pathological hatred and willingness to kill Palestinians on one hand, and then come out later and and uh, give yourself accolades for acting professionally, so-called, uh, in in the execution of one of these operations? So uh, you know, for for anyone who's read any of these statements, it, it's it's so obvious that that's their true intent, and they're just uh, kind of trying to pull the wool over the eyes of anyone who's still willing to believe that Israel is acting justifiably or with any uh, semblance of moral um, uh, courage or, or, uh, or righteousness or action.
2: Mm-hmm. Well, the, th- the thing that really gets me, uh, well, it gets me maybe less than it used to about these Israeli spokesmen is, well, first of all, they're all very good like israel's good at uh at finding these guys um for the most part because they're so calm and reasonable and anyone <clears throat> anyone listening who like is, isn't familiar with what's actually going on who hasn't searched for alternative sources because you know they they only get one perspective from the mainstream media anyone watching that is going to be convinced because they just seem like you know such reasonable people just laying out laying it out there and like well, like what can you do but believe them And unfortunately, you know, that's what it's been like for the past 30 years or so, you know, since the the Lebanon War in the the 80s when they, you know, Israel got a bunch of really bad press all over the world and things were looking really bad for Israel. And so they hired a bunch of PR companies and learned to get their um, propaganda in line and in order. And that was the Israeli word for propaganda is Hasbara. And so for the past 30 years, they've really kind of perfected it where, um, you know, they can, uh, they come up with their talking points and they've got, they've pretty much got them pre-prepared because they can, uh, they can just write up the, what they're going to say before anything actually happens and then just read it and it'll sound just fine. Um, Because despite the fact that, um, you know, these Israelis are on record as saying all kinds of you know nasty horrible things like the things that joe just quoted most of those statements never get reported on in the western media they'll get reported on in israeli media and um, even uh, english language israeli media and of course like palestinian sources um, but you never hear it in the mainstream media or on the news you know they'll never say something Mm. like that in you know on the bbc or you know cnn or even rt or whatever any anytime they're in a, a on a station or a program or you know any kind of venue with a mass readership they they say the right things and um, what else so <clears throat> so you don't you don't get that side of the story at all all you get is the propaganda line and so that's why this guy is able to say just to to either make things up or well yeah really to make things up like you notice how many times in that clip he stated with certainty what Hamas's intentions were and thereby what the intentions of all the demonstrators were and he can't possibly know that and the Israelis can't possibly know that there's been no statement from you know a Hamas official saying that our intention is to get 30,000 people to storm into Israel and take it over or, or do whatever like it's just nonsense but because he's so calm and reasonable and he says it in such a matter-of-fact way, it's like, oh, well, yeah, they must have uh, – that must be what they intended. And it only well, – like – go ahead. He, he implicitly – he doesn't know it, but he implicitly fell into the
3: trap of arguing for collective punishment, namely mm-hmm. that the protesters, yeah. every one of them is a kind of a part of a hive mind that is all Hamas. Therefore, anything mm-hmm. done to one of them is just totally justified because Hamas. Yeah. And a lot of people in the, uh, I'm not sure everyone gets this, you know, a lot of people in the alternative media, especially on the so-called new right or alt-right, they, they get behind Israel on this score because they've fallen for, ah, Hamas are terrorists, okay, ergo, anything coming out of there, I'll either shut up or if I say anything, I'll come back at you and say, but are, are you defending Hamas?
1: Mm-hmm.
3: You know, whenever it comes to any defense of Palestinians or criticism of Israel. so. It's um it, it it happens in the mainstream as well, of course. I mean, I don't want to... shouldn't be too harsh on uh, independent media, but in the mainstream, it it it's happening. It's happening to this day in the UK. Um, Jeremy Corbyn uh, is bashed routinely because of his supposed ties with Hamas. Of course, he has ties. He's got he knows people in Hamas. He's spoken with them. He's spoken on on their behalf, and so on. Uh, it's a it's a complex organisation. Yeah, there's definitely some shady people in there. I mean, they explicitly supported the the Arab Spring against Assad. But that's mm-hmm. not the same reason that Israel would say they suck, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so, yeah, it's uh, it's really insidious on, on so many levels. It's odious. Um.
0: Yeah, well, you can't, uh, in, in talking about what Israel uh, and Palestinians, but Israel in particular, uh, you can't um, obviously, you know, talk about, uh, Israel and the history of Israel without talking about anti-Semitism uh, because it's through anti-Semitism or the cry of anti-Semitism on the rise that Israel uh, is able to to leverage a lot of support and get away with a lot of uh, criminality basically because effectively pitching itself as the a, as a eternal victim and it's interesting that this has happened uh, just uh, you know it's happening just now I mean uh, because there are other things related to anti-Semitism that are going on in uh, in Europe uh, that, I suppose, just a coincidence that's happening, but it's, it's still pretty relevant in the sense that, um, you know, when you see anti- the cry of anti-Semitism go up, uh, Israel always benefits, you know. Um, but there has been, there is over the past... Uh, Few few days, uh, a bit of a furor over anti-Semitism in the British Labour Party, uh, sort of a, specifically in that attacking uh, Jeremy Corbyn, the leader of the British Labour Party. Um, all sorts of accusations. There've been accusations against him uh, for for years, really, uh, for being an anti-Semite or condoning anti-Semitism or anti- a lot of anti-Semitism within the Labour Party, etc. Uh, but over the past few days, um, the Sunday Times, which is an establishment, establishment, a, a conservative establishment paper, uh, did a report that would, uh, uncovered uh, a Facebook groups, basically, with 2,000 messages across four or five Facebook groups that were supposedly Labour Party Facebook groups that had uh, anti, anti-Semitic statements in them. I mean, messages that praise Adolf Hitler is apparently uh, anti-Semitic. And also threats to kill Prime Minister Theresa May—that's also anti-Semitic, maybe. Um, but anyway, uh, this is another. This is just basically a concerted attack against Jeremy Corbyn. That uh, it's one of the ways which the, uh, the British establishment has been targeting and attacking him over the past number of years, and it just uh, uh, increased the volume, let's say, over the past number of past number of days. Um, but what nobody seems to again—it's <laughs> usually the case—no one seems to uh, really care or. Think about in this context is the the likelihood that um, a Facebook group that is nominally a Labour supporting Facebook group that has messages on it of, of a of a type that would uh, would not look good for the, for the Labour Party are very likely uh, or very easily could be the um, the work of British intelligence, uh, given that British intelligence MI5 in particular has a whole cadre like uh, most western major western countries have uh, of internet trolls effectively designed to in their own words create dynamic narratives uh, about to inform the public or to sway the public in one direction or another um so it for me anyway it's very much in keeping with the uh, activities of british intelligence that uh, uh, that the uh, labor the labor party and Jeremy Corbyn in particular as a leader of the labor party um, would be being targeted in this way um, mm-hmm. Because I don't know, it seems that anti-Semitism you. It's the, the ultimate card. It's the ultimate card, and it it wins also, every time. It also, it also, it's also tied to the fact that um, there are several big uh, donors, rich people, in, and here. I'm going to say something that's technically anti-Semitic. That there are a lot of rich Jews uh, in the UK, <clears throat> and who give their money to political parties some of them have given their money to the Labour Party and that's one way to get those people to uh, cease funding the Labour Party uh, is by increasing the claims or or making the claim that uh, the British Labour Party and Jeremy Corbyn in particular as the leader is in some way associated with anti-Semitism or is himself anti-Semitic um, it's just it's a, it's a smear campaign, obviously, and anybody who doesn't see it as a smear campaign, campaign is deluded. But it's interesting because it had, it's had an effect, actually, because there's a guy called Sir David Ger- uh, Garrard, Garrard uh, who had donated £1.5 million to the Labour Party since 2003. And as a result of this past few days' kind of witch hunt, effectively, or smear campaign, he has decided to um, distance himself. Um, to boycott. Well he's basically not going to fund the Labour he's not going to donate to the Labour party anymore yeah because of this so yeah that's a that's a score i suppose but i mean it's just such a no brainer that uh, when you when, when Facebook groups are the the reason for your or, or the evidence you have for anti-semitism in the Labour party uh, and you don't automatically think well how easy is it to create a Facebook book a Facebook group um and post anything defamatory or, or, or anything negative on there and associate it with your enemy. Have it associated with your enemy. But call it whatever you want. If you don't like someone, go create a Facebook group in that person's name. Write all sorts of uh, horrible stuff on there and then call the media and say, hey, did you see this? What about that guy? And there you go. Your your enemy has just been smeared. How easy is that to do? You know, um, It's much more plausible that that's what's actually happening rather than there is a large number of people within the Liberal Party, including within the Liberal Party leadership, who are overtly and publicly anti-Semitic, given what everybody knows about anti-Semitism in the sense that it's not a good idea to be anti-Semitic if you want to maintain any credibility. So yeah, Corbyn's going to like, you know, secretly go and start posting on Facebook and stuff, anti- uh, you know, po- posting, you know, uh, bad stuff about Jews on Facebook. Really? That's your rationale? It sounds like Skripal to me. It sounds like it's exactly the okay. same rationale, the, the, the same line of forces in all of these attacks, which is that it doesn't make any sense for the person that you are accusing of doing something to have done that. There are, clearly, they have proven themselves to be a rational, sen- rational, sensible person with lots of self-interest who want to promote themselves and whoever they, whatever their organization is. In the case of Jeremy Corbyn, the Labour Party. In the case of Russia, the Russian government. Yet, apparently, Putin and Corbyn, two extremely smart individuals, Statesmen, very eloquent, very measured in what they say with obvious uh, interests, uh, personal interests and and national and and party interests, are going to knowingly do something that would obviously invite massive uh, condemnation from the whole world. That's that's your argument? Wow. That's a really crap argument. Mm -hmm. And it doesn't make any sense whatsoever. So let's just discount that as a plausible theory. Because it's retarded and that's a politically incorrect statement a uh, word I just used
3: there's another angle they come at it though um, which is where they say well yes our opponent claims that he's not anti-Semitic he's just against Zionism and he's just criticizing the state of Israel but the uh, they have some measure of success in muddying the waters there because what they claim is that this is really just a surface-level narrative, a politically correct way of saying that actually they are anti-Jew and well, therefore anti That's, anti-Semitic. But that's,
0: that's an equally, equally nonsensical. Arg- it's, it's an equally ridiculous uh, argument to make and it, it, is, it provides no evidence of anything because what you're actually saying is that you know the thoughts of someone else. You're accusing another person of a thought crime. You're saying mm-hmm. that you know what they were thinking, yeah, what they're that, really, and that they don't think they don't know what they're thinking. And this is this is the whole thing. This is what anti-Semitism claims, is that everybody who's not Jewish is unconsciously biased or hates Jews, and they don't even know it themselves. They're born that way. It's exactly the same as racism. Yeah, you're an, you have implicit racism. All white people are implicitly or unconsciously racist. And they don't even know it themselves. And they'll just bumble along doing racist or anti-Semitic things and not even know it themselves until someone has to come along, some politically correct uh, you know, warrior has to come along and say, uh, excuse me, did you realize you just said something racist there? And you go, oh, my God, did I? Can you explain it to me? I don't really know. How, how did I do that? Well, here's, how, here's what you said. And here's, here's, of course, what you said isn't on the surface racist or anti-Semitic. But if you think about it, it can be tracked back to an inherent racism and uh, or anti-Semitism in you, and it's a real problem that you don't know that that happens. You know, I mean, you're all you're you're a danger. Not only are you a danger to Jews and people of other races, but uh, although there's no such thing as race anyway, uh, you're um, you're you're a danger to you, to yourself. You know, because mm-hmm. you could end up in prison and you wouldn't even know why. Mm-hmm. You know, so the only solution is for us for you to put yourself under our psychological care, effectively, where we will um, we will um, police the things you say and don't say. We'll tell you what you can and cannot say. You basically should come and look to us all the time. Check first with us before you open your mouth. And we will vet what you want to say and tell you whether or not it's okay for you to say that. Mm-hmm. Or the alternative, if you don't like that, it seems a bit onerous for you to have to do that every time, uh, the alternative would, would be for you to actively be pro-Jewish and pro-Israel and pro-Zionist and pro-minorities and pro-immigrants, pro-people of other cultures. You know, actively spend a certain period of time every day extolling the virtues of these groups that you are, as a result of your genetics, actually biased against. That's the only way to fix yourself. You can find salvation in that, if you do that. So that, those are your options. And my answer is, stick it up yours.
1: Get out of my well, face. Well, just a couple of points on, on some of the things you said. Um, for one, no one like Jeremy Corbyn who has uh, a lot of credibility and integrity can be seen to have a legitimate uh, gripe or uh, criticism of Israeli policy, and that's what we're really talking about here. We're talking about the wanton murder uh, policy of occupation of Israel. So anyone who who can be seen to have a legitimate gripe has to be taken down with accusations of anti-Semitism. Um, and this, this kind of pervasive psychological care that you refer to is nowhere uh, more obvious than in the U.S., Whenever Congress or the Senate comes to a vote uh, or, a, or a kind of a, a opinion on the, the behavior of Israel uh, as regards to or in regards to uh, behavior with uh, Operation Cast Lead or uh, Protective Edge where thousands of Palestinians were killed, uh, where, where many hundreds of millions of dollars of infrastructure were destroyed, they all in unison come out to say, uh, you know, Israel has a right to defend itself. And this is precisely because of the mind job that has been um, played on these politicians through AIPAC, through through other um, PACs and, and organizations in the U.S. that have been working on uh, via blackmail, via bribes, via uh, all kinds of, of methods to shape them uh, into the the body of politicians that they would have uh in support of israel so this is a this has been a uh a mass mind job that's been done on many but I, i think that's changing i think that um i think that after a lot of these events uh there are a good many people and more all the time at least one hopes that sees through a lot of this and uh even, even if it isn't uh, expressed or covered through mainstream media channels, uh, but that is getting a very different picture of Israel, uh, which would in part explain why the uh, boycott divest uh, sanctions um, has been growing. Uh, so I think there is a, a trickle of awareness that, that has been um, reaching a greater number of people. Uh, well, I, and I think, in the long run, it's 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 not going to bode well for Israel.
3: The, the the place where it counts at the end of the day is um, the level of official condemnation or otherwise. Um, I mean, what we just saw happened in history, like it, it, it's so it's considered so disgusting today that if it happened anywhere else, there would be total international condemnation. Can you imagine if Russian police? had fired into 17 people, killed 17 people and fired at 1,000 in Moscow or in the UK. I mean, it has happened in, in Northern Ireland, but that, that created enough of an international mm-hmm. scandal. That it changed things and it eventually led to a, basically a form of Truth and Reconciliation Commission. It's debatable how effective <laughs> that was, but there was some measure of pushback and uh, you know the authorities had to deal with it. Israel does this. And just a quick search, I think I'm only finding Muslim-majority countries that have issue statements condemning what just took place. In addition to Bernie Sanders, Jeremy Corbyn, and a few other not-inofficial positions, critics in the West, but the governments, either they, they're on the line, they're on the phone to AIPAC or some equivalent, what can we say? Or by now, they're simply so well-trained that they might actually be disgusted but they're just no better than to
0: say anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, that's... Uh, people can complain about uh, any conspiracy theories or uh, around the idea of, of Jewish individuals or a Jewish lobby in Western nations controlling, having a lot of influence, let's say, uh, particularly as it pertains to what Israel does over, over those governments, over Western uh, European and the American government, because as you just said, uh, if this, if any other state in Europe, or even you know close enough to be of concern, let's say, or in in relative peacetime, were to do something like that, whether it was a protest, a mass protest of the, of, of of members of the population, um. Were to, were to be shot by the, by the military of that country, every pretty much every uh, European government would condemn it. But they don't because it's Israel. That suggests some kind of leverage, some kind of control by the Israeli lobby or some kind of lobbying group or some individuals in those countries who can quash any government statement of uh, condemnation against against the killing of Palestinians.
3: Where are the sanctions? Where are the expulsions of spies?
0: Right. And it's not just about Israel being their friend, you know. Uh, Israel being an ally, effectively. Obviously, it's an ally of Western European co- countries. Uh, because, like we just said, if it happened, even if it wasn't one of your allies, a European country, if, let's say, the, the Italian government send out the military and shot 17 Italians in, in a protest out of hand in this way, they would be condemned by European countries who are their allies but in the same situation Israel is not condemned, why? So I mean the, uh, in, in the absence of any other explanation a plausible explanation is that there is a strong uh, pro-Israel group or influence in those countries in European countries that can stop them actually condemning such a, such a thing
3: Indeed, or if the Italian government shot 17 migrants right. that had just arrived. It, it, mm-hmm. Arguably, in the current be worse. political climate, it would be worse.
4: <laughs> and what mm. did
3: Israel do this week? I think they they officially made legal or began the process of expelling something like 10, 20,
0: Ethiopians, uh, Ethiopians,
3: Africans, people from mm-hmm. North Africa, some, I believe, of, of Jewish, or, you know, they're religious. Jews. That's why they went there in the first mm-hmm. place. Um, most are not, I think. But, I mean, they just create totally full-on. If, if you're thinking Trump's laws are Nazis, well, uh, Israel's laws are full-on. No, get out. Uh, you have 10 days, and mm-hmm. we're forcing you to get out.
2: Yeah. Well, Neil, you brought up the, the example of, you know, if the Italian government or police would shoot migrants, it would be all over the news. It's kind of Sickly funny in a way that, like we heard the Israeli spokesman using the language of the migrant crisis. So you have all these European countries who have experienced a real like swarm of, a swarm of people from other countries crossing into a sovereign, you know, a sovereign nation. And he says, you know, the Israeli guy says, "Oh, that never happens, and you know, no one would think it. Uh, you know, it's a bad thing if." Um, you know when you when you understand that it's a bunch of foreigners trying to swarm into a, a, a sovereign country um well actually that's happened um you know for the past several years and like you said if that were if if any european government were to just set up a line of snipers and shoot like 700 of them and kill 17 of them you know, that would be news like that they would be like pilloried they would be crucified. Right from their other governments all over the world for such a horrible thing, and the Israeli government, you know, makes off as if, oh, it's just a, it's just as normal. They, as if they're the victim. Yeah, look at, look at what you made me do.
0: Right. Well, uh, let's stop. Uh, well, I think we've dealt with that topic for now. I mean, it may continue, so we'll be have to, have to wait and see, but. Uh, because it's, it's kind of ongoing, there are more protests today, etc. So, uh, and there's just like, uh, in the interview we just listened to, there's six weeks leading up to the anniversary of the Nakba, so um, we may have to come back to it, um, hopefully not. But anyway, um, other madness or events typifying a descent into chaos and utter fecklessness amongst the ruling elite. Um, the anti-Russia hysteria, in sheer
3: contrast to the previous story, right. um, an, an absolute nothing burger, actually mobilizes international response and actions right. and repercussions and punishment and so right. on. Sanctions. Sanctions. Well, I, I suppose in the end, it's it's. You, you spoke with uh, Sputnik this week, and they asked you about it, and you said it's. Probably largely a symbolic because it doesn't really hurt Russia, right, to do such a thing. But no, it's it an do, annoyance. It does look. It certainly does look bad. It's like it reinforces this. It kind of makes real to the passive media consumers, I suppose, that you know, maybe Russia really is dirty. That they're, they're actually right. literally dirty and need to be shoved away.
0: You know, right. uh, the, get away from me. Right. It has no. It hasn't. Doesn't have much tangible uh, impact in the sense that uh, those. Um, those diplomats uh, that have been kicked out of the UK and the US and in other European countries, they can and, w- and will be fairly easily replaced. It's a bit of an, an annoyance and, and, a, and a headache, but there's still a lot of Russian diplomats in those countries. They have a very big diplomatic presence uh, around the world uh, in, in various countries. Um, so, but uh, on the level, like you just said, on the level of the, it's, it has to be seen in the context as a, of the propaganda offensive that's been waged against Russia for. For many years now, so it it creates the impression that uh, our increases uh, ups the ante on the on the propaganda that of the smear campaign against Russia that Russia is this evil perpetrator and that it does things that are so horrible that we have to kick them out of the country because these people why would you kick them out well because they're a threat why would you remove anybody i mean uh, the implication is that these people are being kicked out or are some kind of a threat to uh, to national security the, the evil nefarious Russians. so it's it's that level of, of propaganda and of twisting the public mind against russia that that it has an effect and that's 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 what the west has been on uh, that's that's the campaign that they've been on that's the pri- that's the primary thrust of their attacks uh, against russia and their attempts to contain and downgrade Russia on the international scene has not been by, you know, a little bit by sanctions, but they tried sanctions, didn't really work, uh, have tried sanctions. Sanctions don't seem to be doing very much. Uh, on a military level, it can do nothing because there's mutually assured destruction, or in fact, Russia may be even in the ascent from a military point of view, um, versus the West, certainly versus European countries. So the only thing they're really left with it is to tarnish the image uh, and the reputation of Russia on the international uh, scene with, uh, with as many dirty tricks as possible so that in okay. some way you will achieve the same result of destroying Russia almost militarily. I mean, the end result is to destroy Russia in one way or another, to downgrade it, to push it back so that it's effectively a, a weakened uh, uh, state that can do very little on the international stage, um, You can achieve that by military means, but you can invade the country. You could bomb Moscow or something like that, and you would would have a chance of achieving achieving that. But they can't do that, obviously. They would like to, but they can't. So they think that uh, through this propaganda offensive, they can achieve more or less the same thing where, let's say, where the whole international community, quote-unquote, just like turns its back on Russia. Nobody will do any deals with Russia anymore on anything. Nobody will buy any Russian wheat. Nobody will buy, you know what I mean? They have some... (sighs) some notion in their head. But again, it strikes me as desperation, you know, that they would go to these extremes. Uh, they must really hate Russia for some very strange and particular reason. They really don't like Russia. And what I was saying on the interview with Sputnik was that it's kind of interesting because that hasn't changed, you know. I mean, people talk about Cold War Part Two or Cold War 2.0 that's on now. But it's not. It's the same Cold War. It didn't. It didn't stop. I mean, they they, they didn't change their tactics. They're, they're still. In fact, it's worse. I mean, tensions right now are worse. People have said that they were worse than they than they ever were in terms of the, the actual relationship is worse than it has ever been or ever was during the height of the Cold War. So, uh, and the problem here is that if that Cold War has effectively continued on since 1945 when it began, continued on, on t- until 2018. Uh, well, then we have a problem with the rationale for the Cold War because the rationale for the Cold War was the evil communist Soviet Union, and the only reason we were against the West was against uh, the Soviet Union but was because of communism because of communism communism is no, no longer exists in russia it's not a communist state in any shape or form it 's much more it 's far closer it's pretty much synonymous with 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 a Western capitalist, at least from an economic point of view, it's a, it's a Western capitalist mo- model. So that's gone, and the Soviet Union isn't there anymore. So uh, it was a Cold War then, but it, so those things are gone. But they continue on with the, with their hatred of Russia, their their attacks, their uh-huh. their propaganda campaigns. So does that mean the Cold War wasn't about communism? If they kept it going when con- communism died. Because everybody thinks it was just about the comics, well, right? Of course it was about geopolitics and, and influence in the world and all that kind of stuff. But that's what we've been saying all along. On, on Arguably, that. it dipped off. It did. Well, in the 90s. Yes. But they dusted it back off. Right. It's just a bit of a, 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 a kind of a a break yeah. during the 90s, let's say. Yeah. Uh, but then they just picked right up where, where they left off and dusted off. As I think one U.S. politician actually said or one U.S. intelligence um, director said that they dusted off their Cold War playbook. And they're just using it it again. So Russia is essentially Mm -hmm. doing the same thing today that pissed off the West during the Cold War. But it's not communism because there is no communism. So what's Russia doing? Well, Russia is attempting to assert itself and its influence as it it has a right to do on the world stage. So that's Mm -hmm. what's pissing them off. So that's what was Mm -hmm. pissing them off under the Cold War, not communism. They didn't give a damn about communism. Uh-huh. It was about hmm. what the Soviet Union was doing in terms of expanding its influence. Oh, and what? apparently, you're not allowed to expand your influence. Right. Okay. Other countries in a global hegemony under the American Empire are not allowed to unilaterally, in an independent way, expand their influence. You're not allowed to do it. Mm-hmm. If you do it, you will be excoriated. You will be beaten.
3: Well, every possible some implement. countries
0: expanded way beyond their station. Small one, maybe. Saudi Arabia. Ah, oh, but that was the deal was struck with them. That's joined at the hip. That's yeah. Sammy's twins type of thing with America, you know. Um, MBS was in the US. Or uh, MBS uh, was uh, in the US recently. And actually, this ties into it's funny you mention that because yeah. MBS was in the US recently on his whirlwind tour, and he gave uh, uh, an interview to the Washington Post, ah. where he basically said uh, he let drop the the truth that has been known for quite a long time. In one form or another, that during the Cold War, the Western powers, he said, or his Western allies, whatever, i.e. America mainly, uh, encouraged Saudi Arabia to spread Wahhabism, uh, i.e. through madrasas, through religious schools in various countries around the world, including in Europe and stuff, uh, in Western Europe, uh, but in other countries in the Middle East. To spread extremist, fundamentalist Islam through these schools, boarding schools, effectively, uh, and by getting recruits into them to spread fundamentalist Islam into the minds of young people all over the Middle East, and push them into push these people then into countries around the Middle East, in order to stop uh, the Soviet Union from having an influence in those countries. I America said, "Hey, Saudi Arabia, why don't you fund a bunch of jihadist nut jobs, train them, and fund them, and train them from children?" And then push them into countries uh, with a view to potentially, you know, overthrowing the country, but at the very least to control uh, the influence of uh, this possible influence of, of Russia into those countries in the Middle East and any other area that uh, that uh, Russia might have expanded. So what he was basically saying was that the current problem we have with fundamentalist Islamic terrorism. And extremism is a direct result of a policy that the U.S. promoted using Saudi Arabia to do it uh, during the Cold War. And it was mm-hmm. – the point of it was stop Russia.
1: Mm. So do we think that he's uh, shifting blame for nope. Saudi Arabia's participation in, uh, in, in funding terrorism and, and supporting terrorism? What, what, what is he doing there? Do we have any thoughts on mm. that?
0: I don't think so. I think he's telling the truth. I mean, what he's maybe
1: he's
3: he's defensive a
0: little, but I'm not sure. I think it was said matter of factly. Yeah, I mean, it it speaks directly to, for example, the uh, the mujahideen in Afghanistan that everybody knows is a common knowledge that the U.S. uh, supported the mujahideen in Afghanistan against the Soviet Union. That 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 commonly known fact uh, that led to Al Qaeda et cetera uh, in the in the Russian Afghan war in the late seventies and early eighties. Um, he, that, that's just one example of what he's talking about. What, what, he's, what his comments expose is that that was just what they did in Afghanistan by funding the Mujahideen, i.e. Al-Qaeda, or extremist Islamists, by funding and training and arming them, uh, that that was going on in many different countries.
3: Afghanistan was just the point of a spear, right. of a strategy that was much broader. Right. Now.
0: Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, it, it kind of puts the whole Islamic terrorism problem today at the feet of, of the West, and, and in particular America, that it was actually a part. Uh, and, I mean, it was part of our policy to, to, to get Russia back in, during the Cold War. And it's no surprise then that you see America today, you know, decades later, funding the same radical, fundamentalist, Islamic, jihadi types in Syria against who? against Russia. Mm-hmm. Originally against the Syrian government, but when Russia invaded, then it becomes against Russia. Um, but I think there was a more nefarious part to it. It wasn't just to stop Russia actually getting uh, spreading its influence during the Cold War. It was actually to spread these kind of fundamentalist Islamic types into uh, Soviet republics, uh, particularly <laughs> in the Caucasus and Chechnya. Um, and, and Which were Soviet
3: uh, republics at the time. Exactly, but mm-hmm. they were trying Central to
0: in Central Asia, they're trying to infiltrate in the the stands. Basically, they're trying to infiltrate them in there to to kind of basically. They want. They ultimately, they, I think, they wanted to break up the Soviet Union. Even at that time, they wanted to. It did break up, but they were hoping that it would break up more. If you know what I mean, that it would become a much more fractured country. That you wouldn't be left with the big country that that is Russia today. That you could get more uh, more fragmentation. And um, but it's
2: uh, I don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, and they were they were pro uh, Chechen separatism in right. the 90s, so I mean that's what they were looking for. They would have, you know, they would have been um, cheering if the Chechens had declared independence and got it in some way. So yeah, they would have they would have loved if Russia was, uh, you know, split up even more. Mm-hmm. And I think one of the reasons that they that they that and uh, well, let's say that the anti-Russian sentiment went down in the 90s was because. Russia in the 90s was, was, as we, you know, as everyone knows, a real um, uh, shithole, to use <laughs> President mm-hmm. Trump's terms. I mean, the like all the regions, like there was no what they call, you know, in Russia, the vertical of power. The all the regions were essentially like separate, um, you know, um, governorates. Like they they weren't following the the rules of the Russian Constitution. They weren't paying their taxes. They were. Essentially, like these little separatist communities or you know regions, and it was only when when Putin uh, like reestablished that vertical of power and got them all into line to basically start paying your taxes, start following the law, stop operating as um well stop operating outside the the laws of the you know the country that you live in that um, that Putin was then you know seen as the next you know big enemy. Because Russia in the 90s was, it, you know, it, it, it was exactly what they wanted Russia to be. It had no, it, it wasn't unified, so it had no real influence or power, and it was tied to the hip with the Americans. Yeltsin was, um, you know, the Americans helped Yeltsin steal the election in 96. So they were fine with all that. Um, they were fine with Russia, you know, with 70% of the population being in poverty, um, you know, big deal. It was only when when Russia reestablished its sovereignty under Putin that they became, you know, enemy number one. And one of the things that I was thinking of while you were talking about this, the whole dynamic, Joe, was um, this book that I'm reading. I think we, we might have mentioned it on a previous show, I can't remember, uh, Creating Russophobia by Guy Matin. And it's very interesting because he goes over the entire history of anti-Russian sentiment, mostly, um, you know, from the West. And it basically goes back um, a thousand years in many areas, but then he traces each of the individual instances of it. So, you know, the the French, the British, uh, the Germans, and the Americans. But really, the the first instances of Russophobia, like a, a vehement anti-Russian sentiment, were from the you know the Great Schism, from when the the so-called Byzantine Empire, which was really the Eastern Roman Empire split off from the western roman empire and uh christianity kind of went in these two branches and so from that from then on the the westerners like the latin church saw the easterners as uh you know barbarians as Mm -hmm. um you know just kind of less than human and with these kind of you know yeah barbaric practices and beliefs when really they were part of the same church before then and the, the, the schism was really prompted by the West, and then they, they blamed it on uh, on the East afterwards. And of course, then the Eastern Roman Empire, um, Russia took up the mantle of, of leading the church after that. But if you look at um, the history of English Russophobia, it's very interesting because Russia and England were Essentially, allies for like 300 years up until the early 1800s, mm-hmm. and reading about what went on in the 1800s, it's really like reading. Um, if you just change the names, change the places, it's really about. It, it really sounds like it's just a, a total repeat today of what happened 200 years ago, even to the extent that like there was a um, this kind of separatist type movement going on in Circassia, which is around you know in between Sochi and Crimea. And the British were basically trying to to get around an arms embargo, so they were smuggling in weapons to these Circassian freedom freedom fighters, and got caught uh, essentially, and created this big kind of scandal. And then they, they just kept doing it. Now Circassia eventually um, was integrated into Russia, and it still is today. But um, what what Gimatov? kind of identifies as the origin of the British Russophobia was that um, it was essentially internal British politics as far as he can see and, and he quotes a, another guy that did a, you know, a big study of this in the, I think it was in the 1940s, late 1940s because he was trying to understand the, 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 um, the turn against Russia after the Second World War and so he wrote this book looking back and finding these parallels from 200 years ago. Or you know, 150 years ago, by then. Um, but essentially, it was the the, uh, all the British opposition parties and um, um, either um, going against the, the the government in power, basically saying, "Oh, you guys are being too easy on the Russians because they want to take over the world," or um, yeah, the, the the other group saying, "Oh, the the Russians uh, are." Um, what's the what's the language they like to use? Threatening our national interests or threatening our interests in um, you know places over the world. Basically, mm-hmm. the trade routes. So mm-hmm. all the only thing they were really in, they were really worried about was that Ru- uh, was that Russia might gain influence with other countries, establish their own uh, mm-hmm. trade ties with these other, con- other countries, and thereby diminish. Um, the the British hegemony like over the seas and through all these trading trading routes over land and sea and they were worried about Russia getting control of this of all the land access mm-hmm. and that's what prompted the Great Game so-called in the in the eight, in the 1800s um, which was Central Asia South Asia East Asia basically vying for control over that over those access routes so it was all geopolitical just like it is today but the the media in in the in the UK um for these political internal political purposes ramped up the russophobia in order to per, to portray Russians as um basically you know the, the, just like the anti-Semitism, you have the, the stereotypical Jew and the, like Jewish conspiracies and things like that. Well, there was the, the stereotypical Russian and the Russian conspiracies. So Russia wanted to basically destroy civilization and take over all of Europe and Asia. Mm. And, um, you know, they were these barbarians that were just out to rule the world and totally evil. So totally over-the-top over stuff using f- forged documents and just made-up claims. Um, that were demonstrably made up and forged you know, after the fact, of course. Mm-hmm. But it created this entire climate of anti-Russian sentiment that has pretty much continued for those two hundred years in in the UK. In this instance, with Not slight, quite. you know, ebbs. It, Not it, quite. There have been it, slight it, ebbs, but
3: what, what's I've read this book too. It's fascinating. <coughs> there is a general pattern but there are very sharp dips at particular yeah. points in history that's what's doubly fascinating and that's also what speaks to the reality of the phenomenon um a kind of I'm sorry to say this because I know it's been abused in other circles structural racism um, and <laughs> it suddenly stops and starts again and the the reasons for why it suddenly stops are fascinating uh, in the case of the UK they suddenly the british empire suddenly stopped because they wanted to get Russia on side for the Triple Entente with a view to taking down Germany, World War One. But up to mm-hmm. that point, it had been very pronounced. Um, one of the forged documents that I remember from the book was called Peter's Will. This is supposedly the last will and testament of Peter the Great. <laughs> and it went on and on for a hundred years. No such thing existed. But once someone had fabricated... Um, it's like Chinese whispers. It grows and grows and grows. But everyone was citing it in academic circles, in strategic circles, in the media, right through the 19th century. And the gist of it was basically that Russia, uh, Peter's last will was to his disciples, you must take over Europe. And the way you must do it is by infiltrating the governments, corrupting their people, corrupting them with vices, and so on and so forth. It's a freaking blueprint for the same thing that was are claiming today. P- in sort of true for communism, whatever we can debate that, but is definitely the same as this claim today.
0: Yeah, we have a. Let's uh, go to our call here. We have <clears throat> um, Stephen
4: on the line. Stephen, hey, how y'all doing? Not too bad. How's yourself? I'm doing great, thank you. Good. Yes, yeah. um, it was. It was. I was pretty shocked that the uh, that May came out with these accusations about Russia, and um, you know, it's pretty. And I shouldn't be shocked because the 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 average person in the United States right now, all they're hearing is like little snippets about Russian, you know, Russian poisoning. Right. And um, what's what really strikes me about this situation in the United States is the liberals um, are taking this opportunity to um, position themselves as like more war hawkish and driving Trump into some kind of confrontation with uh with russia it's like it's it's pretty it's pretty amazing i was listening to uh democracy now and they um in her introduction amy goodman in her introduction about the current news she mentioned that trump during a speech did not mention the poisoning in london and didn't mention russia in his uh presentation at some rally right Mm -hmm. and that's pretty that's pretty amazing that she's trying to like basically say to us uh look trump's guilty he's guilty of kowtowing to russia by not mentioning the poisoning this is from the preeminent left liberal progressive news site in the united states that that's pretty Mm -hmm. striking to me about this russia hysteria at the moment so, anyway. Stephen,
1: do you do you listen to Democracy Now! just to piss yourself off?
4: <laughs> oh my God. You know, to, the problem with me and Democracy Now! is like I really, when I started paying attention, it was like one of the only sources you could get some in, kind of anti imperialist news perspective, right? So I, I even donated money one time, thankfully only 25 bucks, but I really believed that they had integrity. And then starting with. Libya, the way they participated in in the propaganda that led to the NATO attack, U.S. imperialist attack and destruction of Libya, that was unforgivable on from my perspective mm-hmm. and uh, and my values, politic, my political and ethical values. It was just there, but so I focus on them as like this. Just I I kind of get an enjoyment of watching how wormy they become, you know, if, mm-hmm. and I, I know that's. There's a little bit of Freud, but no, really, they're just disgusting. And you're right. It is kind of like punishing myself by listening to them. But, um, anyway, you guys have had a great discussion today about this. And I think that this is very worrying. Um, I, I'm very careful not to mention Russia or Putin or anything, anything like this to anybody because I'm a Russia. I'm a rusophile. I respect the Russian culture and in the history and so forth. And um, they've shut me down. So this this is how effective propaganda. This is how all this functions. It keeps the the population, ruddies the population for just permanent antagonism. And there used to be a, a left progressive force that was anti-imperialist that would normally call call this for what it is, right? But now it's very interesting in that it's Trump supporters, people on the right. That have a more anti-imperialist perspective. And then the people on the left, the progressives are all stumbling over themselves. Disinformation about Syria. Um, you know, they, it's just so weird. The current context is, I'm kind of like flummoxed in a way, intellectually, trying to wrap my mind around what's happening. But no, it's, it's actually very frightening. It, it could, this could really, they're trying to go Trump into confrontation with Russia even more. um, Mm -hmm. It's wild. Did you notice... This whole thing...
3: Go ahead. Do you notice when um, Putin was re-elected, apparently, from from the way events unfolded, it looks like a memo almost literally went out because no Western leaders would congratulate him, Mm -hmm. which was revealed indirectly by Trump's congratulating him and the subsequent... Haranguing he got in the U.S. media for doing so. That was to me yeah. it was like, I mean, that right there speaks to a deep state. There's some coordinated decision making that goes on in the background, and Trump mm-hmm. usurps it.
4: Mm-hmm. And you know, for me, if I'm trying to wrap my mind around what's happening, is that this serves the function in the United States and 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 among um, billionaire the billionaire corporate classes, right? they can keep everybody afraid you keep the armaments industry going so that way you're funneling money to the rich um so they make profit on it and um so this works out fine and dandy And this is why it's anybody that has any critical thinking skills would look at this accusation of poisoning and automatically just right off the start be skeptical about it with the the speed in which they make these these accusations against Russia, it's really clumsy intellectually. Yes. So um in my estimation, anybody that buys into this as an intellectual or promotes this, like um like any progressive type, one of these fake asses, I just lose total respect for them intellectually. And um I'm disappointed as well in um the Intercept and in Green Glenn Greenwald. They they seem like with their connections with the media they're really been really horrible with Syria and Ukraine. And they um, so they're not, you know, I'm very, I'm very disappointed in in, in Greenwald. And uh, they're a bunch of they're really this is really disturbing right now. We have basically no major source. Um, we have The Nation magazine that has some sanity with Stephen Cohen's commentary. But yes. um, it's pretty what pretty wild situation that we're looking at right here. And they're just Mm -hmm. trying to go Trump into further conflict when I suspect that Trump doesn't want this at all, but he's, but there's like these larger billionaire corporate, um, connected arm arm industry connected forces Mm -hmm. are kind of Mm -hmm. like pushing the whole momentum of this, in my opinion. Yeah. Right. Yeah. But anyway, Hey, great show. And I appreciate y'all being there.
0: All right. Thanks for the call soon. Thanks. Take care. Take care.
4: Bye.
2: Bye.
1: Well, just uh, taking off from one of Stephen's last points, I wonder if now would be a good uh, time to comment a little bit on uh, the appointment of John Bolton as Trump's national security advisor, because, um, you know, you would assume that uh, Trump has a certain amount of, uh, of power or control over who he decides he wants as part of his team. And, uh, And Bolton, quite obviously, has been one of the foremost, even if he kind of dissociates himself or disassociates himself with the neocon mindset or ideology, for all intents and purposes, he's a warmonger and a neocon. Uh, And, um, you know, as we've been reading in the past few days and and weeks uh, since the announcement was made about his appointment, uh... I mean, in addition to his support of the Iraq war and doubling down, uh, even after it's been shown to be such a a failure on so many levels, uh, you know, he affirms the correctness of of that choice. Um, And uh, as we know, he's in support of the MEK. This is the uh, Iranian group of terrorists who uh, are vying for regime change in Iran, uh so bolton is all kinds of ways bad and and yet he is now brought into the fold uh and and is going to have trump's ear um in a way that few do so what do yep. we think about this
0: well we kind of we discussed this last week alan mhm when you were uh, you, you doing were doing
1: my roving reporting
0: you were missing an action yeah Uh, but yeah, I mean, Bolton's, uh, you know, everybody pretty much knows what he is, but I think Trump doesn't have many options really anymore, uh, in terms of the, or doesn't have many options in terms of the number of people available for, for that kind of a role, you know, I mean, he has to pick a Republican or some kind of a Republican type person, supposedly, um, can't pick a Democrat, obviously, Yeah, so, um, and there aren't, aren't many left, you know, and, you know, people that people that would be independent, let's say, who don't have ties to some kind of deep state or some, some kind of agenda, you know, he's gone through quite a few people uh, already uh, who, who, you know, he probably got rid of them or there were problems in terms of their two visions, you know, and... Uh, Bolton is like a... Bolton's an independent warmonger, if you know what I mean. He's in it for himself. Like You're talking about him not being a neoconservative. He said he's not a neoconservative himself, but he said he, the reason he's not a neoconservative is because, is because he doesn't uh, he doesn't like the idea of invading other countries for um, to spread freedom and democracy. He just likes invading other countries. So he's not a neoconservative. Uh, yeah, exactly. So that's, that's the kind of person you're talking about there, you know?
3: It's... um. It's definitely troubling. It's two things joined at the hip. Bolton is, of course, Mr. Invade Iran. Um, Trump's, from the get-go, Trump's been on about the Iran deal and all this yeah, stuff. That's um, but that was his kind of, we suspect, his, uh, his pact with Israel, so to speak, or his feint. Or maybe it's just his sincere, maybe he really believes all this stuff. Israel, build a wall to keep the swarms out. So we're going to build a wall to keep the swarms out. Maybe it's that simple. I don't know. But the other thing is that on the face of foreign policy, it looks like it's all about getting Iran, right? But you see, you can never detach U.S. domestic politics from anything that happens, even when it's for someone like this, for basically a foreign policy outlook position. John Bolton, as I mentioned last week, is a key operative in the Republican establishment. Mm. Um Back when Robert Mercer was trying to figure out where to send his money and who to, to which horse to back, and he originally backed Ted Cruz, the way he got the money in, he had to go through John Bolton's own super PAC mm-hmm. in the Republican establishment. So Bolton is not just, you know, he's not just been a nobody this, this last decade. No. He's high up in the Republican establishment. Trump's probably picking him with a view to November mm-hmm. um, and winning the House again or hopefully not letting the Democrats win it. Um, Because he needs that to continue, basically. Uh, There's a risk of impeachment. I don't know how serious that is at this point, but there's certainly a risk of a Democrat majority House this November. So it's domestic politics, really, I
0: suspect. And someone like Bolton has, you know, can pull strings, whatever, has contacts, et cetera, et cetera, can uh, use his influence with the Pentagon. Maybe Putin or Putin. Trump reckons that Bolton, with his connections, basically can... um, you know, maybe use them to help Trump do what he wants to do. I mean, the whole thing's such I mean—that's just such a cabal of nut jobs in the U.S. government in general. I know, no matter what stripe they are, uh, Republican or Democrat, it's just, just, just. I wish you could just write them off, you know, consign them to the dustbin of history. Except they just—they're there and they won't go away, you know. Yeah, they still have power. Uh, yeah. Um let's uh, what was the other thing um that we mentioned Syria. in the title of the show was is the US leaving Syria. Trump made this comment, supposedly at some some talk he was giving that we're gonna get are oh, we give it was at a rally. Yeah. We're gonna be leaving Syria pretty soon. Yeah. Anytime now we're gonna be getting out, just watch watch it. Just watch it happen. It's coming. We're gonna be getting the hell out of there. See you later, taking the money and running.
3: Let them Whatever. deal with
0: it. Let the other people deal with it. But then you have this story about uh the French, supposedly, uh, coming in to uh, take over, possibly take over from the U.S., you know, pass the baton to the French military, you're right, uh, in in, Syri- in Syria, um, particularly in northern Syria, to look after, to take care of the SDF, the Syrian Democratic Forces, quote-unquote, the Kurds uh, that the U.S. has partnered with in order to kind of like hold that northeastern chunk of Syria so they can just plonk their... American backsides down there in the middle of or northeastern Syria and say, well, we're not moving. Here we are. We've got our national, in- strategic interests over here, and we're not moving. So, But Trump's, like, talking about leaving 2,000 troops. There's probably more than that, but he's talking about pulling 2,000 troops out. Uh, but on that point, I mean, there's uh, he actually, to give some credence to that, uh, he declared that he, after declaring that he wants to end American presence in Syria, basically, uh, he froze according to the media, froze $200 million in funds that were uh, earmarked for the Syrian recovery in Syria, whatever that means, you know. Uh, Syrian recovery, um, which is creating a new democratic state, i.e. a little Kurdistan that's going to serve as a model for the rest of Syria of how the new Syria can be, i.e. divided. That's what they want to create the the impression of, of a new Syria, which is that not only Assad, balkanized you know, partitioned in some way, um, but then they're they're, they're running up to, in, into a problem here with um, with Turkey because one of the areas that the the US has a base in or has troops in in in, in North Syria is uh, Manbij, uh, a city in in that area, and the Turks aren't happy with that. Turks want to continue their offensive against the Kurds in 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 northern Syria, uh, they start off in Afrin and stuff, and they want to move further eastwards towards the Euphrates, and possibly even they've set across the Euphrates and uh, over right across the north of, of Syria. And the, this Syrian city of Man- Manbij is uh, the U.S. has military personnel there with the Kurds as a, as a stronghold in northeastern Syria, and Turkey is saying, "Listen, we want to take that city. We want to attack." the Kurds in that city. And the Americans are saying, no, you're not allowed to because we have our personnel there and if they come under any attack, we will defend them. So, uh, who knows? A curious
3: thing happened in Man Beach this week. The first deaths of US and British soldiers. Now, the story is that they were killed on the outskirts of the city by an IED. What, a roadside bomb planted by ISIS. Hang on a second. ISIS aren't there anymore. So they've been saying, so, so who was it? You know, uh, but that's interesting because, um, well, who done it? And also, it kind of raises the ante for them. Uh, are you in it? Are you looking at body bags now? Uh, how am I invested? Uh, Russia's clearly invested in it. They've lost dozens of troops in the last two years. Um, but this is the first time the Western party yeah. to the war has been hit. So let's see what happens there.
2: Yeah,
0: um,
3: it's an area... <clears throat>
4: There
2: was also a report, um, just in reference to Trump's comments that he made at the at the rally. There was a report from two unnamed you know, White House sources, basically confirming what Trump said that that Trump has been vocal in uh, you know in his talks with his administration about leaving Syria, and they've they've said um, you know from whoever these guys are if they even exist that. <clears throat> the generals are trying to convince him to stay and that he's not convinced by them and he just wants to get out. And so just another little bit of, um, you know, potential support for the idea that he's actually serious about it. But then again, you know, he was apparently serious about wanting to get out of Afghanistan. Um, But, of course, Afghanistan is a different situation entirely where, um, you know, Russia isn't in... (laughs) in uh, Afghanistan, for example, like the U.S. doesn't really have any, um, doesn't have much room for movement in Syria, at least not as much as they do in Afghanistan. But also with this rally, it was one of the few that, um, well, when it happened, you know, we were talking about it and at first it was like, oh, Trump says he's going to get out of Syria. And then it's like, oh, it was just a rally, Um, you know, throw away comment. But that was one of the few rallies that he, that was officially posted on the white house website which i found was kind of interesting because they don't usually you know he doesn't usually post his full rallies on there once in a while so he they put it out there for everyone to see so i I don't know it's uh it's interesting it'll be interesting to see um what happens because of course whenever whenever a president makes a decision like that um like there wasn't a similar decision from obama but um similar dynamics where obama and kerry well primarily John Kerry, negotiated several kind of arrangements with Russia and Syria. And then as soon as they started, the military um, sabotaged the deal, essentially. So we'll just have to see if the military sabotages any plans Trump might have for wanting to leave. Right.
0: Uh, I think we'll uh, close out the show here, but I want to play another little video slash audio for, uh, you might have heard this one from a Fox News interview with uh, former CIA director, James Woolsey, um, and for me, it just sums up, it should be played over and over again, around the clock on TV, uh, just uh, so people understand uh, what they're dealing with and what the world is dealing with in the, in the American government, what its policy is, and what its attitude to international diplomacy is, uh, particularly as it relates to Russia. So here it is
1: they want to be a force and they want to disrupt things uh they call their big overall program uh, disinformazia disin- uh, so i just stopped
0: it there. obviously he's talking about russia and i just had to laugh at them saying that you know, this technical term disinformazia that means disinformation it's quite a technical <laughs> term i learned that in the
1: cia when mm-hmm. i was director anyway good job james information and uh... they've been doing this since the nineteen twenties nineteen thirties what's new is that they do it with cyber but uh... they haven't didn't have much luck disrupting american elections back in the you nineteen know, thirties or nineteen forties uh... but uh... they've been doing that to other countries all along uh... they are taking over a lot more of eurasia than than they should and it gives them heart as they mm-hmm. take more and more uh, under their wing
5: have we ever tried to meddle in other countries elections
1: Oh, probably, but uh, it was for the good of the system in order to avoid the communists from taking over. For example, in Europe, in 47, 48, 49, uh, the Greeks and the Italians, we
3: We don't do do that now, though? We
5: don't mess around in other
1: people's
5: elections?
3: Well, only for a very good (laughs) cause. Can you do
5: that? Do a Vine video on a former CIA director. Only for
0: a very good cause in the interests of democracy.
5: All right, thanks for being here.
0: Only for a very good cause mm-hmm. and the interest mm-hmm. of democracy. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's me mm-hmm. interfering in other people's elections, but you know, Russia, is <laughs> the one who does it. Really, I mean, we do it for for good things. And I mean, who can take? I mean, unless I mean, the guy is basically speaking directly to the. He's speaking the truth, but it's a joke, you know, or it's uh, it's he's being coy. But of course, it's we an do, understanding but, between gentlemen. Well, it's, but it should be a common understanding. Everyone maybe a lot of people do understand that maybe a lot of people do understand that America does interfere in other people's affairs and other people's elections. it overthrows governments, it overthrows legitimate legitimately elected governments, it stages coups, kills people in order to to change the government in the country and to influence the course of that country and sometimes to take direct control you know if only uh, covertly of that country. Uh, but the way he says it, you know, that's the attitude. The attitude is, it's okay, we shouldn't really talk about it, but we can kind of sneakily talk about it because everybody knows that we're doing it for good stuff. But you're not doing it for good stuff. You're not doing it for, it's not any better or any more good than what that, what Russia might do. And certainly Russia has done far less, and every other country in the world, with the exception of the UK maybe, has done far less of, 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 of coup plotting and overthrowing of governments than America has. But it's it's this exceptionalism, you know? It's like that when we do it, it's good. When anybody else does exactly the same thing, it's fundamentally bad. And they could get away with that during the Cold War because communism, because evil communism. But now you don't have communism, the communism excuse anymore. But you still continue the bullshit rhetoric of evil Russia doing evil things that we do, and we do far more in spades because what? well we don't have communism anymore so because uh because Russia's bad you know you don't have the rationale of evil you know communism anymore so it's just like well they're just bad then putin's evil he's a dictator and that's what gives rise to when you have to create a new uh, kind of aura of evil around your your geopolitical adversary you have to actually give some credence to it or give some Put some material clothing on it. And that's what gives rise to these kind of uh, dirty tricks and false flag effectively operations, uh, an example being the Skirpal uh, alleged poisoning, where you have to actually poison someone, poison a Russian, former Russian spy in the UK, blame it on Russia. You have to shoot down MH17, blame it on Russia. Because now it's not evil communism, that's just evil Russia. But it's not obvious to anybody or hasn't been obvious before the past few years that Russia was inherently evil. Mm -hmm. How do you make them inherently evil so you can blame them on everything? Well, first of all, you have to make them do things. You have to do things in their name and then accuse them and leverage the media and the government uh, propagandists to convince the entire world and mess with everybody's heads, particularly in the West and around the world uh, to get them to believe that Russia is evil. That's how pathetic this whole thing is. I wish I had a big fish. Because <laughs> I would definitely, I would be wearing it thin at this point. I'd run around the Pentagon and the State Department in America. And geez, be, there wouldn't be one scale left on it that the time it's finished. <laughs> Everybody. We're going to have to get, get a Joe a big clap. fish. I want a big, <laughs> Yeah. A big one, a heavy, a big one, rubber one, a heavy one, a rubber, big okay. rubber fish.
3: I, I'm sure there's something like that online. And,
0: and it. make it so that whenever I hit people, with it it makes a slap, a very loud slap <laughs> noise, because it might not always make a slap noise. And uh, and then we'll we'll film it. I would so love to do that. How come? A, how, mm. come a, how come it's not possible for me to do that in this reality? Can we? <laughs> come on, make that happen. Well, you kind of can, <laughs> and. and know, oh, but In they an do. information It's way. gone beyond the information thing. These people need direct action. <laughs> they, need to, they need to feel it on, the, on their jowls. <clears throat> anyway, um, geez, one day, maybe one day, everybody will get the chance. Um, until then we'll just have to do it, like Neil says, uh, keep doing it metaphorically, slapping the crap out of these psycho nut jobs are pissing everybody off royally with their crap. We have to look at it every day, you know. It's kind of weird, you know, because we we look at this stuff, you know, on a daily basis. We're faced into it, and it's almost like this is our community type thing, you know. And it's like normal people in times gone by, your local family, friends, and closer community pub, pub, whatever, was your environment, mm-hmm. and that's where you had, you know, you had your relationships and, and and you dealt with issues and sometimes things come up, whatever. But that's how you that was. The, the scope of your interactions but now because we basically are keep looking at the world because we think it's necessary and it's a useful thing to do uh for ourselves and for other people um that becomes almost like our community mm-hmm. but it's like living in a, in a in a in a house of deviance you know what i mean our community a complete deviance you know so and, and everything that happens is just like you know it's a shit show it's like they're th- Throwing crap at each other, they're lying to each other, and it could have been prevented. It, and, it need not have happened. Right, they're manipulating people, and that's why you have this impulse to go and slap some faces and say, you know, cut that crap out because you kind of feel it personally because because it's what you're looking at. It's like it's like your local community is the the, the entire world for us anyway. That's mm-hmm. our local community, and everybody's behaving very badly. Well, particularly uh, the people uh, that we supposedly um, are. Culturally and uh, racially uh, associated with, yeah. and they are the ones who are who are acting up and acting in the most egregious and despicable manner, and that's why they need to be seriously slapped. There's no other solution. They'll need to be put in a very, very, very naughty con- corner for a long time. Anyway, I don't know. We'll take a break.
3: Hmm. Keep keep the faith because you said you despair at the top of the show but that no one listens to it. But I think the Russians, I think we're having some influence on the Russians because now and then they sound like conspiracy theorists.
0: Mm. Well, they have to at this point. They (laughs) They have to. Well, I think
3: yesterday the Russian ambassador explicitly flipped it on the UK by saying that um, at this point, frankly, we suspect that the actual perpetrator of the crime against Sergei Skripal was
0: the British Security
3: Services. Right.
0: Mm-hmm. Like, hello, thanks. Well, that's great. It's great that they're saying that because, I mean, it's, and it's great that there's someone with some leverage or some, uh, with a platform and an audience like the, the Russian government, an international audience and a voice that can, can say that kind of thing because for so long, uh, I mean we said that right off the, right off the bat because we've seen it over and over and over again and we know that the modus operandi of these people we know how the world works and it's not conspiracy theory it's just how nut jobs with a pathological drive to rule the world actually act that's what they do you know grow up it's not a conspiracy theory it's reality and um, so we say we're pretty much able to call it right from the get-go because it's it's their past form it's the same thing they're liars they're pathological liars they've been caught in lies over and over and over again when they when they do something do the same thing again you you can pretty much say yeah they're probably lying that pathological liar is probably lying again uh so we say it from the and lots of other people say it from the uh, from the get-go and then but it's heartening to see that you know within a few weeks the russian government says yeah you know that's probably what's going on
3: his counterpart over in the US, um, gave a little stump speech as they had to clear the embassy. I'm not sure where exactly. Maybe in Washington. Uh, he's quoted here, we want everybody to understand that the US and Russia are destined to become friends again. Hmm. Only close interaction between our countries can help maintain international stability and find mutual beneficial solutions. He sounds like Putin. I mean, it's all exactly stuff Putin says. Who said that? the American ambassador, Mm. um, relations between ordinary people shouldn't suffer. We'll do everything in our capacity to make sure that Americans have zero problems when they come on trips to Russia. Mm -hmm. That's the response. The response is the total opposite. It's I mean, call me softy, but the response is love. From who? Well, that's love. I mean, that's the definition of, you know, I have no problem with you. You know, turn the other cheek. Mm. That is the most Christian thing you can do. Right. Now, Maria Zakharova, she give her a sharper. She get a fish out and start slapping someone, right, yes. You know. But there are others uh, in the Russian government, and uh, Putin makes similar kinds of statements that are like, you know. Yeah. Well, we understand. No problem.
0: But that's a, it's an it's a position of strength to be able to say exactly. that exactly to do exactly. that. So it suggests Russia feels itself and is in a very strong position, and it just has to you know, just have to grin and bear all this nonsense and the lies and subterfuge that's, that they're subjected to by, by Western powers and by the U.S. in particular. And I can always come back and say, listen, are you done yet? Have you finished? Okay. Can we talk yet? No. Okay, we'll do another thing and call me all bad names. And then whenever you've calmed down, we'll talk. Okay?
3: When you look around the world when no one is being responsible, what do you do? You stand up and be responsible.
0: Right. It's so, the best. Teach by example, basically. So hopefully, some more and more people will get the get the lesson. Anyway, I think we'll leave it there for this week, folks. Um, thanks for tuning in, and uh, we hope you enjoyed the show. And we hope you have a good evening. Until next week. Bye bye.
3: Bye everyone. See you next week.
1: Take care, folks. Bye.